2: Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to RocketMoney.com/Wondery. That's RocketMoney.com/Wondery. RocketMoney.com/Wondery. America is
3: waging a war against Islam. Invaded Iraq because it hates Muslims invaded Afghanistan because it hates Muslims.
0: He's describing something called the narrative, an ideology that convinces young extremists that America is hell-bent on crushing Islam. Once a true believer, Majid Nawaz is now trying to convince young
3: Muslims in places like Pakistan that it's wrong. Do you know how many Muslims are in America? Do you know how many mosques there exist in America? Do you know Obama's father is Muslim?
4: I would imagine that when people ask you what you do for a living, it's not the easiest thing in the world to explain. I just say, I make body parts. (laughs) (laughs) He's not joking. By manipulating cells in the human body to regrow tissue, researchers have created ears and bladders and even heart valves. That's beating. The US government and biotech companies are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into regenerative medicine hoping to profoundly change human lives. He's one of the biggest names in the American
5: movie business, and almost every time Tyler Perry puts a new movie out, it opens number one at the box office. He has built a multi-million dollar empire, yet most Americans have never heard of it. How can that be?
6: Make a nervous sound.
5: Because what he creates is directed at a specific audience and they can't seem to get enough of him.
7: Do not play him small because he is not just some lucky, rich, Negro-turned-black <laughs> man. He, he is not.
0: I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bob Simon. I'm Morley Safer. I'm Byron Pitts. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories
5: and Andy Rooney tonight on 60 Minutes.
0: When it comes to terrorism and extremism, intelligence agencies in the U.S. and Europe have been grappling with the bewildering phenomenon that a surprisingly large number of Islamic radicals are relatively well-off and well-educated Westerners. To look into this, as we reported in April, we went to Great Britain, where there are more supporters of al-Qaeda than anywhere else in the West. In London, we met a British Muslim named Majid Nawaz, who told us that what's turning so many of his countrymen into radicals is something called the narrative that says the United States is out to destroy Islam. It's an ideology Islamic radicals subscribe to. We asked Nawaz, a former true believer, exactly what is the
3: narrative? That America is waging a war against Islam, invaded Iraq because it hates Muslims, invaded Afghanistan because it hates Muslims, and that the only way to stop this war is for Muslims to start fighting back on all fronts against the West.
0: Did you buy it all?
3: Absolutely, yeah. yeah you I, co- I you accepted
0: it. everything you were saying. There was no cynicism within you.
3: Obviously. No, I, 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 and I put my neck on the line for these beliefs. I, I was a genuine, committed ideologue.
0: Nawaz was a leader of his But Tadir, or Party of Liberation, one of Britain's most active Islamic extremist groups. He joined when he was in college here at the University of London.
3: But this is where I actually took the oath, uh, the membership oath.
0: And recruited other students to fight against the West. Was it easy to recruit kids here? Were they susceptible? I mean, as you say, they're very intelligent, they're well-read.
3: It was very easy, and I've got to say that, actually, intelligence makes it easier. And it's intelligent people that adopt ideologies.
0: He points to people like the alleged Christmas Day bomber, who also attended the University of London, and the ringleader of the suicide bombing of the London Underground, who went to Leeds Metropolitan University.
3: Our religion is Islam.
0: Here he is in this martyrdom video telling the British public that by invading Iraq, the West demonstrated it was out to destroy
3: Muslims. This is your de- democratically elected government's continuously perpetuate atrocities against my people all over the world. And this is in a thick Yorkshire accent, somebody who was born and raised in the UK, saying to his own fellow countrymen, your people have attacked my people. What suddenly made him think that the british public had attacked his people who were the iraqi public when he's a member of the british public born and raised here he's
0: the picture of homegrown terrorism with a biography similar to majid nawaz's a third generation pakistani brit nawaz grew up in an upper middle class home in essex east of london his father was a successful engineer in the oil business and growing up nawaz was both happy and
3: assimilated all my friends were non-muslims i i actually knew very little about Islam, like very little. So you weren't religious? No, I wasn't Did religious. Did you go to the mosque? No, I didn't.
0: Everything began to change in his early teens when he and his mostly white friends were attacked by racist gangs. They were skinheads? Yeah.
3: They didn't attack me directly, but they attacked my white friends in front of my eyes to discipline them, to make examples of them for being blood traitors.
0: Just by being your friend, they were blood traitors. Yeah. So you'd be out with your white friends and, what, the skinheads attacked them, not you?
3: They would hold me back and make, force me watch them stab my friends.
0: Stab? Yeah,
3: with knives. Yeah. I was about 13, 14 years old.
0: He says that primed him, made him susceptible to the radical
3: message. I was primed because of this racism to already feel that I didn't belong in my own society. I felt that there was something different about me. And it was at that phase, at that stage of my life, that I came across a young medical student. The medical student was a recruiter for the group Hizbut Tadir, or HT, which has supporters
0: around the world, from here in Indonesia to England. Unlike al-Qaeda, it does not advocate the use of terrorism, but it is fervently anti-Western and deeply committed to the narrative. When H.T. recruiters worked on Nawaz, they played on his sense of alienation. They broke you down so that you were no longer British. Mm. You, you, A person who had, had no religion became a Muslim. Yeah,
3: along came these Islamist activists. and said, you're being targeted because you're Muslim and non-Muslims hate Islam. When the skinheads who attacked me didn't have a clue I was a Muslim. They were looking at the color of my skin. And we, you bought it. I did, as an angry, young, naive, 15, 16-year-old. And you became a Muslim. And I became suddenly, I'm not just a Muslim in faith, I became a Muslim in politics, somebody whose politics were predefined by one interpretation of Islam. What is your job once you join up? To recruit as many people as possible to this group and spread this narrative far and wide. After working in England for five
0: years, he was sent abroad to spread the narrative, to Pakistan and then to Denmark. When he went to Egypt in 2001, he was arrested in a post-9-11 crackdown on Islamic radicals. It was the beginning of his journey back from extremism, a journey that began in the dungeons of Cairo State
3: Security Headquarters. Everyone was given numbers. My number was 42. And then what they did is they started with number one, called number one into their interrogation cell. And the, and the rest of the hundreds of people that were there would have to listen to number one scream as he was being electrocuted. Then they would call number two, and everyone had to hear number two scream and, and get electrocuted. They'd call number three, and they'd go up the numbers one by one. So you can imagine. I was 42.
0: And you listened to 41 people being
3: being tortured.
0: You said electrocuted. What do you mean electrocuted?
3: Electricity was applied to their um, genitalia and their teeth.
0: Oh, my God. During his trial, he remained defiant. He would walk in and out of court shouting out radical slogans. After he was convicted and sentenced to prison for five years, he was locked up with the assassins of Anwar Sadat and leaders of the
3: Muslim Brotherhood.
0: Boy, if you weren't radicalized up until then, you certainly would have been then.
3: Well, the interesting thing with these guys is that in the 20 or so years since they'd been imprisoned, they'd gone through a process where they had abandoned their jihadist views. They did? Yeah. And my initial reaction was, oh my God, you've sold out. And so I approached them with an idea to try and actually convince them they were wrong.
0: You were going to re-reconvert them?
3: Yeah. And what ended up happening was, through the discussion process, I began doubting the strength of my own convictions they were able to persuade him that today's radical ideology is
0: closer to fascism than true Islam. So after four years in prison, he returned to England in 2006 and soon left HT. So how difficult was that to break away like
3: that? It's traumatic. Traumatic. I mean, because all my friends circle, friendship circle, my family. At the time, my wife was also a member of HT.
0: And and what, your marriage fell apart because you left?
3: It did fall apart and we're no longer together.
0: After that, he decided he wanted to make amends for the 13 years he had spent as a radical. So now he devotes himself to rebutting the very narrative he once passionately promoted.
3: Frankly, uh, Leslie, I think it's the key factor in solving the problem we're experiencing in the world at the moment.
0: Countering the narrative.
3: Countering the narrative is the core of the solution making this narrative as unfashionable as communism has become today.
0: To do that he co-founded a think tank, the Quilliam Foundation, that is mostly funded by the British government. The idea is to influence the two million British citizens who are Muslim and especially the roughly 2,000 of them who the government says are Islamic radicals who pose a threat to national security.
6: Now by Anjum It Chowdhury. is
0: their views All Nawaz the attacks. And- here on the BBC, he's debating an extremist who wants to turn England into a caliphate,
3: a religious state under Sharia law. In your so-called caliphate, you'd have me killed, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have me... am I an apostate that deserves death? Oh, well, I mean, obviously, Onto Imagine the, the wise, Imagine the wise, it's one so of them, so You know, that very well. an apostate you know what the person really about? We suddenly saw a police helicopter. Here he is at Oxford, taking difficult questions,
0: like the one about the drone attacks in Pakistan.
7: They bombed the buses, school buses of children, and they fired on them.
3: I'd be very angry. I want to attack them back. What's the link between wanting to attack someone who's killed my family and wanting to enforce one interpretation of Islam over the entire country? And now Majid Nawaz is taking his war of
0: ideas to Osama bin Laden's doorstep, Pakistan, where HT had sent Nawaz 11 years ago to spread the word.
3: It was 1999... Pakistan had just tested its atomic bomb and uh, the global leadership of H.T. had decided that they wanted to establish H.T. in this country so that their caliphate could go nuclear. Oh, go nuclear. Oh, they had the
0: bomb. They wanted a country with the bomb. Well, because their
3: intent is to establish their caliphate, their, their super state, and then declare jihad against the world. You came 11 years ago
0: to convert people to extremism. You've come back. To what? Undo
3: what you did? Absolutely, to undo what I did, but by using the same strategies and skills that I learned inside these organizations to try and use those skills against their message. I went to Egypt. In the past year, he's spoken to about 7,000 students
0: across Pakistan, including places that are so dangerous, he has to wear a flak jacket. The first one here, might- the large gatherings are followed up with smaller
3: workshops like this one in Lahore. Where he tries to rip the narrative apart. America did not invade Iraq because Iraqis are Muslims. Oil, money, economic interests, who knows? But it was not because Iraqis are Muslims. Do you know how many Muslims are in America? Do you know how many mosques there exist in America? Do you know Obama's father is Muslim? Of the 70 students,
0: about a third were women, some with headscarves, some without. All were engrossed as Nawaz railed against the Islamic radicals who set off their bombs in marketplaces or mosques and disparaged those who then remained
3: silent. Why are we busy making excuses for the terrorists? Why don't we protest against the terrorists like we protest against America? Is it not also a crime when Muslims are killing Muslims? The students in Lahore seemed receptive to his message, but then this is a city
0: with a history of religious tolerance.
3: Sikh temple.
0: Nawaz showed us a Sikh temple that was built in 1848 right next to the Great Bachai
3: Mosque. I don't want anybody to tell me how to worship God.
0: He had a much rougher time at another workshop with a group from Peshawar and the Swat Valley. More of the students here believe the narrative, and they challenge Nawaz. Why do Western countries want to destroy Islam? Why does democracy lead to homosexuality? Why is the US trying to prevent the teaching of Islam? Why they are they against Islamic teaching in Pakistan? For five hours, Nawaz attacked their hardened anti-Western views. No, that's not true. He debated and pleaded and argued that, okay, the civilian casualties from drone attacks are tragic, but al-Qaeda
3: has killed many more innocent civilians. If a man walked in here today, and he jumped in the middle with a suicide bomb, and he said, I'm going to kill you all because America has bombed Waziristan, you'd be the first to stand up and say, what have I got to do with that, why are you killing me? And after all of that, I wondered
0: if he was making any headway against the narrative.: How many of you believe it is U.S. policy to be at war with Islam and to destroy Islam? OK, so about a third of you believe that.: I have a question regarding 11.: When this student got up to ask me a question about the bombing of the World Trade Center, I got a feel for how much we can talk past each other. So you're telling me that al-Qaeda didn't do 9-11.
2: Is that what you're saying? Yeah. We all know that al-Qaeda was created by the CIA to... He was
0: saying it was the CIA that told Osama bin Laden to attack on 9-11. We don't... We attacked our own Pentagon and the World Trade Center to have a justification to go into Afghanistan. Do you really believe that?
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: They believe we attacked ourselves so we could go to Afghanistan and kill Muslims. What I'm sensing is that there is uh, an enormous amount of anti-Americanism.
3: Am I right? Give us one single reason to love America, and we'll forget about the rest of the millions of reasons to hate America.
0: After a statement like that, you you begin to question whether even a former extremist can uproot the idea here that the West is out to destroy Islam. You're one person, and you're kind of blowing into the wind. Um, It's almost like Don Quixote
3: tilting at windmills. There are people who are as frustrated as we are with extremism in their own country here in Pakistan but they've never had anyone to articulate that frustration to organize them and to help them work along those lines that means work it means we have to be in it for the long haul and it means the solution isn't going to come through bombs or through prison it has to come through the ideas debate which is de- by definition a long strategy
4: thousands wait in vain for organ transplants soldiers return from battle horribly maimed. There's only so much medicine can do, but we may be on the path to a new technology in which, quite literally, we will be growing new body parts. It's called regenerative medicine. Cells in the human body are manipulated into regrowing tissue. As we first reported last December, researchers have so far created beating hearts, ears, and bladders. Biotech companies and the Pentagon have invested hundreds of millions in research that could profoundly change millions of lives. Dr. Anthony Atala runs the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in North Carolina. You name the body part, chances are Dr. Atala is trying to grow one. Currently
8: at the institute, we're working on over 22 different tissues and organs.
4: So, bladder? Yes heart liver
8: yes kidneys lungs the possibilities really are endless
4: are you suggesting a remarkable future of when organs fail we simply replace them and live to 120
8: 150 well the hope for the future is that if you do have a patient who has organ failure you don't want that patient to die because you're waiting for an organ people are dying every day on the transplant wait list so the hope of the field is that we can provide replacement tissues and organs that can be used to help them survive.
4: Dr. Attala presides over the world's largest lab devoted to bioengineering body parts. He's made everything from components of fingers to kidneys. It's enough to make Dr. Frankenstein jealous. Slightly spooky, isn't it? It is. <laughs> Dr. Attala says every organ in our body contains special stem cells that are unique to each body part. The key to regeneration, he says, is to isolate and then multiply those cells until there are enough to cover a mold of that particular body part. What is growing here? That is
8: actually a bladder. And you can see here that we actually create a three-dimensional mold first. This is actually coated with cells and it's done one layer at a time. It's very much like baking a layered cake.
4: It's sort of surgery as pastry-making. But how do those cells know? (laughs) It's a really stupid question, I understand. But how do the bladder cells know that they should be functioning as bladder cells?
8: Every single cell in your body has all that genetic information to create a whole new you. So if you place that cell in the right environment, it'll be programmed to do what it's supposed to do.
4: Dr. Atalus says some body parts are more simple to make than others.
8: This is actually an ear mold. And you can see here the mold shaped like an ear. And then what we do is we start seeding these with cells. And then this is actually the fully engineered ear. The molds are designed to degrade over time. So as the tissue forms, the mold goes away.
4: And if that was for a child, would that grow with the child? Yes.
8: The body does recognize them as their own and it does grow with the child.
4: Depending on the body part, Atala says the whole process can take six to eight weeks. This is actually an engineered heart valve. That's beating.
8: This is actually where they get matured
4: right before they get implanted. He says that human testing of heart valves and blood vessels will begin within five years. He's already grown and transplanted livers in mice and has successfully transplanted human bladders grown outside the body from the patient's own cells. Caitlin McNamara is one of the recipients.
8: I never even knew I could get this far. I'm just living
4: a normal adult life. Meanwhile in Pittsburgh, researchers are taking a different approach. At the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, They're trying to trick the body into actually repairing and regenerating itself. Dr. Stephen Badalak is the Institute's deputy director. I would imagine that when people ask you what you do for a living, it's uh, not the easiest thing in the world to explain. I just say
9: I make body parts. (laughs) (laughs) It gets their attention.
4: He and his team are convinced that the key to regeneration is finding the switch in our bodies that tells ourselves to grow when we're still in the womb. The accepted wisdom is that we're born with what we have and that's it. You know, the body doesn't grow new parts.
9: Well, the human body, because there certainly are examples of species that can regrow their arms and legs, like a nude or a salamander. But as a human, early enough in gestation, we can do the same things. We can regrow major body parts.
4: In essence, is what you're doing trying to find the key to turning that process back on?
9: Yeah. If we could make the body, or at least the part of the body that's injured or missing, think that it's an early fetus again, it's game,
4: set and match. Dr. Badalak says he now has the material that might be a step towards that. It's called ECM, extracellular matrix, which he gets from, of all places, pig bladders. The extracellular matrix.
9: Exists in all of us, it exists in all species. It's loaded with signals that instruct
4: cells to do things. Where do pig bladders come into it?
9: They are a convenient source because it's a throwaway product for the agricultural community. And so we can get rid of the cells in the remaining extracellular matrix, has proven to be very uh, instructive
4: to it, the body. We're very closely related to pigs, yes. Yeah? <laughs> Probably closer yeah. than we'd like to admit. Yeah. <laughs> he it's says like, that ECM could regrow virtually every tissue in the body. Flour, it looks like flour. <laughs> it
9: does, yeah. Yes, yeah, taking this through airports can be tricky sometimes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> when doctors at the University of Pittsburgh were treating a patient with cancer of the esophagus who was too weak to face complicated surgery, they turned to Dr. Badalak and his ECM.
9: Our therapy of choice right now is to remove the esophagus and pull the remaining stomach up through the chest and attach it to what's left in the throat so the treatment's as bad as the disease. So w- what we have done is said can we take a regenerative medicine approach to allow surgeons to go in and just resect cancer and instruct the remaining esophagus to regrow itself.
4: Dr. Blair Job operated on 76-year-old Irwin Schmidt last April. Job removed the cancerous lining of the esophagus and inserted a sleeve of ECM. Instead of forming a scar that would block his esophagus, doctors believe the ECM instructed his cells to regrow a new lining. Today, Schmidt is cancer free.
10: I'm eating real good. Uh-huh. I feel terrific. Uh-huh. And I'm starting to put weight on. It. That's great. No pain, no nothing.
4: So, essentially, you gave him a new esophagus. We're very excited. Uh, by this and I think you know my heart I feel that this
11: will change the way we do things ultimately but I think right now it's
4: too early to claim victory. You look like you're claiming victory already though.
10: I feel fantastic, good.
4: Based on that success Dr. Job and his colleagues hope to start a full clinical trial soon. Welcome back. And then there's the military. The Pentagon has invested $250 million in regenerative research aimed at helping soldiers with severe battle injuries, regrowing muscle and skin for burn injuries, as well as transplant technology for lost limbs. Dr. Stephen Wolf is the chief of clinical trials at the Army's Institute for Surgical Research. I would imagine that the patient group that you're dealing with are a particularly positive one. They're young Eager men, who suffer these horrible losses and want to get as much of their lives together as they can.
11: Absolutely, they want to go back. Most of these guys do. They so, say, "Hey, fix me up so I can go
4: back." Beginning this month, Dr. Wolf is leading a clinical trial that could one day make that possible. Army surgeons will implant ECM in the limbs of severely injured soldiers in hopes of restoring muscle lost to roadside bombs. What we're doing with this project is putting this ECM
11: in there and then hoping that it populates and it becomes muscle.
4: It also, in a place like this, goes by the name of pixie dust, correct? Right.
11: (laughs) Well, it is somewhat magical, isn't it? The whole notion of, well, we're going to put this powder in there and it's going to make a new thing. And there is a lot of biological support of that whole notion so it's not magic you know but it certainly seems that way. What do you hope to achieve here? Well we're not going to you know, just show up and go hey okay here's your leg we'll stick it on. What we hope is that we can replace certain tissues that can make them function as well as possible.
4: Which is what Isais Hernandez says ECM did for him. Hernandez was so severely wounded by a mortar round that amputation of his leg seemed likely. Dr. Wolf operated on Hernandez last year as a first test of ECM in this type of injury. He placed ECM in Hernandez's thigh, which grew entirely new muscle in a wound that had once exposed the bone. Give me another five. Let's just see. His physical therapist, Johnny Owens, says the muscle growth is clear. And relax. It has grown. Yeah. Yeah. It, on, on imaging and, and to, to what we see and to what he feels, it feels like it's grown. Do you feel the difference? Yeah, I
11: mean, it doesn't, feel, it doesn't get him um, as tired as quickly or shaky. Before,
4: after doing some of the workouts, I'd have to take a break, and now I don't have to take a break anymore. It's remarkable. It's yeah. amazing. It must give you a lot of pleasure to see that kind of progress. It does, yeah, and I think there's a lot of potential to see bigger and better things. Well, you saw that this, to some extent, worked, were you surprised? Did it fail miserably? No. Uh,
11: In fact, it seemed to work. Mm
4: -hmm. Eureka! If this works, it
11: could really change trauma medicine, yes. In terms of muscle loss, now, all right, what happens if we put that by a nerve? What happens if we put that by bone? What happens if we put that by your heart? What happens if we put that by... So so you see it, it opens a lot of doors if it actually works.
4: The military is also using regenerative techniques in hand replacements for amputees. Doctors at the University of Pittsburgh have successfully transplanted a hand taken from a cadaver onto the arm of Marine Josh Maloney, who lost his right hand working with dynamite. How's the hand feeling today? Using cell therapy and a bone marrow transplant from the donor, doctors were able to get Josh's body to accept the new hand without many of the anti-rejection drugs that are almost always toxic. Maloney says the surgery has given him his life back. To Dr. Wolf, it's the least medicine can do. These guys, they were protecting us. They
11: took the hit for us, and they deserve our respect for that reason. And, uh, and from my perspective, they deserve our very best effort. To do the best we know how to do, and then further to do the best that we don't even know yet how to do.
5: <laughs> 60 Minutes continues in a moment, and we're always online at 60minutes.com. What filmmaker has had five movies open number one at the box office in the last four years? Spielberg, Tarantino, Scorsese? No. This record belongs to Tyler Perry one of the biggest names in the movie business, yet many Americans have never heard of him. His nine films have grossed more than $481 million, one of the highest average grosses per film in the industry. And as we reported last fall when we first broadcast this story, they're just part of Perry's multi-million dollar entertainment empire. which made Tyler Perry guaranteed box office gold is his devoted audience, largely African-American, church-going, working class, and female. Long ignored by Hollywood, they come to see something they can't get anywhere else. Inspirational stories about people like themselves and to laugh at characters like this. Go in that room and take your medicine. You know you're crazy as hell when you don't take it. The (laughs) gun-toting, wise-cracking grandmother played by Tyler Perry himself, Medea.
6: My soul cries out hallelujah, thank God for saving me. Madea is a cross between my mother and my aunt. She's the type of of grandmother that was on every corner when I was growing up. She smoked, she walked out of the house with her curlers and a moo-moo, and she watched everybody's kids. She didn't take no crap. She's a a strong figure in in where I come from, in my part of the African-American community. And I say that because I'm sure that there are some other parts of the African-American community that may be looking at me now going, who does he think he's speaking of? But for me, this woman was very, 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 very uh, visible.
5: That's what Tyler Perry's work is all about, reflecting a world his audience relates to, and they show up in drones. You heard it, a horse whisperer?
6: I'm the kid whisperer.
5: It's been written that Medea is one of the top ten grossing women actresses in the country.
6: They weren't serious when they wrote that. (laughs) Come on, come on.
5: But Mania's done well, she's done well by you.
6: Yeah, she has, she has.
5: So have his other popular characters like the flamboyant Mr. Brown. I'm Leroy Brown. My
10: friends call me Leroy Brown. You can just call me Leroy Brown. Yeah, yeah, how you know?
5: (laughs) But it's not just comedy. Perry's work is a gumbo of melodrama, social commentary, and inspiration. Got the strength God gave us women to survive. I
10: just ain't tapped into it yet. It's
5: a formula, one that intentionally targets
6: women. You're always going to see a person of faith. Nine times out of ten, it'll be a woman who has problems who has lost faith or lost her way there's always going to be a, a moment of uh, redemption somewhere for someone
5: and then there are the grittier darker elements the violence especially directed at women and children sex and child abuse prostitution and drug use but there's always a fairy tale ending a happy marriage a reconciliation often delivered with a dose of gospel music Although Perry's themes are universal, he's not widely known outside of his niche audience.
6: The average American has no idea who you are. Now, how is it possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. It's, um, there's this great thing called the Chitlin circuit, which I started my shows on. And back in the day when the, you know Ray Charles and Billie Holiday and Duke Ellington, they couldn't get into white establishments, so they went on this circuit and toured. They were huge stars in their own community. You know, and that's pretty much my same story. I I was able to build and have this amazing career among my own people, but outside of that, you know, not a lot of people knew who I was. Tyler Perry, superstar of the Chitlin Circuit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, superstar of the Chitlin Circuit, I'll take that.
5: (laughs) You realize what a superstar he is and how strongly the audience connects to him when he appears on stage after a performance of one of his plays. Their reaction gives you a sense of how passionate they are about it.
6: You make them nervous. Sit down.
5: But he didn't always get this kind of reaction. He got a start in theater, writing, directing, and producing plays. His first production, a gospel musical staged in Atlanta in 1992, bombed. But he kept writing and staging new plays, cultivating his audience. By the late 90s, they were selling out across the country, making big money, more than $75 million. Perry's goal? Turn those shows into movies. Hollywood's
6: reaction? Get lost. They didn't open the door. I had to cut a hole in the window to get in. That's what you did? Oh, yeah, man. If you close the door on me and tell me I can't, I'm going to find a way to get in. Yeah.
5: He found his way in by setting up shop in Atlanta in 2004, where he made his first film, Diary of a Mad Black Woman,
6: using his own money. He who has the goal makes the rules. If somebody else is going to give you the money, then they're going to be in control. They're going to own it. They're going to tell you how it goes. They're going to give you notes and give you changes. I wasn't willing to do that, so there was no other option for me.
5: Diary debuted at number one in 2005, stunning Hollywood. Perry's been surprising Hollywood ever since, doing it his way. He writes, directs, and produces his movies, and all nine of them have been major hits. This is your dream.
6: Yeah, yeah. One of them. One of
5: them. This is Tyler Perry Studios, 31 acres of movie and television production facilities, one of the largest independently owned studios outside of Hollywood. It opened over a year ago, financed by Perry himself with the profits he's made from his productions. It's
6: Perry's multi-million dollar Magic Kingdom. This is the back lot. And I named it 34th Street as in Miracle on 34th Street. He so, makes all of his films
5: so here, releasing two back. a year. And he employs as many as 400 people.
6: That's the Cecily Tyson stage next to it. It has
5: five sound stages, a gym, even a chapel.
6: This is a wardrobe. There's Medea. Where? Up there. <laughs> saw Medea. That's where she lives between movies.
5: Roll sound, please. we When he's not making movies, this relentless multitasker is running his two hit sitcoms on TBS, House of Pain and Meet the Browns. Hit him hard. Hit him hard, really. He has total creative control and owns everything he makes.
6: And we cut. Very good. Thanks a lot. I'm out of here.
5: Tyler Perry's huge success has brought him power and even comparisons to Oprah, his friend and mentor. They teamed up to executive produce Precious a film about an urban teenage mother
7: battling abuse and illiteracy, which opened last November. Do not play him small, because he is not just some lucky, rich, Negro-turned-black <laughs> man. He he is not. To be able to take what he saw as an opportunity to reach a uh, group of people and to turn that into this multi-million, soon-to-be, multi-billion dollar enterprise is um, what everybody else is trying to do.
5: What's the connection you think Tyler Perry has with African-American women? Well,
7: first of all, I think he grew up being raised by strong black women and so much of what he does is, is really um, in celebration of that. I think that's what Medea really is, a compilation of, you know, all those strong black women that I know And maybe you do, too. And so the reason it works is because people see themselves.
6: This is it. This is my universe.
5: Perry says he's writing what he knows, writing where he comes from. He grew up working class in this tough New Orleans neighborhood.
6: And my heart is racing just being here. Isn't that crazy? Why? Uh, I, I don't have good memories here at all.
5: But it's those memories, both good and bad, that have inspired
6: much of his work. <laughs> Mr. James is still sitting on the porch. He's, he's watching everything. You know that boy was over there with that girl last night. <laughs> so That sounds like one of your characters. Yeah, Man, listen, are you kidding me? We met
5: two neighbors who reminded us an awful lot of a certain See, grandmother.
6: Is, these are the kind of women I grew up with. Oh, and, and, yes, and, and Christian women, and Christian women. Christian women with guns. Well, I mean, <laughs> Christian women. And then people baby. wonder where Medea came from.
5: We crossed the street to where he used to live, and the pain of his past came back.
6: This is where I grew up, and I have not been in this house in years.
5: In this house, Perry says his father Emmett repeatedly beat him and his mother Maxine. He described one time when his father whipped him with a cord until the skin came off his back, and told us when his father wasn't beating him, he was belittling him. Your father used to warn your mother
6: about you. Yeah, one day I would make her cry, because she would try to protect me from him. What the f- you protecting him for? What are you, what are you protecting him for? This boy sh- ain't gonna be sh- one day gonna make you cry. So. He brought us out
5: back showed us the covey hole where he would escape from his father's abuse.
6: This is my hideout, my safe place, you know.
5: When you got too much, you go in here?
6: Yeah, yeah, I've spent like all day in there. So I had a door there so I could go in and, and close myself up, you know, to be okay for a minute. Yeah.
5: Your father, it sounds like still makes you, can still make you feel like that boy, little boy. Now, how is it possible?
6: You'd have to walk that road and be that little boy. A lot of it I've, I've put out of my mind because it was so horrific and so painful that had I not, and that's where my imagination was born, that he was losing it and saying all those things. It would, I could absolutely be there in that room with him at the top of his lungs and go somewhere else in my head. His faith and his mother, he says, saved him. Sunday morning, she'd take me to church. And this is the only time I saw her smile and happy. So I wanted to know the God, this Christ that made my mother uh, smile so much.
5: Perry says he's forgiven his father and come to terms with the abuse.
6: This is what happens. You let it destroy you or you take it and you use it. I chose to use it and I chose to put it in my work and I chose to, to have it touch and make people understand it.
5: Yet there are some who don't understand Perry's work and dismiss it, many of them African-Americans. They find characters like Medea, Mr. Brown, demeaning caricatures, racial stereotypes. Spike Lee has said, and I quote, I think there's a lot of stuff out today that is coonery and buffoonery. I see ads for Meet the Browns and House of Pain, and I'm scratching my head. We got a black president, and we're going back. The image is troubling and
6: it harkens back to Amos and Andy. Right. He's talking about you. I would love to read that to my fan base. Let me tell you what Medea Brown, all these characters are, are bait. Disarming, charming, make you laugh, bait, so I can slap Medea in something and talk about God, love, faith, forgiveness, family, any of those things, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, th- that thing, you know, that pisses me off. It really does, because I it it is, tell. yeah, it's so insulting, it's attitudes like that, that make Hollywood think that these people do not exist, and that's why there's no material speaking to them, speaking to us.
10: Now, a few minutes with Andy Rooney. Why is it, I often say to myself, that most of us have a desire to eat more than we need? Whether we're having peanut butter on toast or leftover rice, we eat more than we need to keep our bodies going for the rest of the day. It seems as though one serious and constant defect in the human character is desire. We have more desire for almost everything than we need. People have more desire for sex than the world needs to populate it. Just about all of us have this great desire to make more money than we need to live comfortably on. Many of us can't stay away from the stores where we buy stuff. We have this great desire to buy and acquire more possessions than we can use. Can't something be done about this? Those thoughts occurred to me recently when I brought my lunch up here to my desk from the cafeteria downstairs. I ate what I had, then I wanted a cookie, so I went back downstairs and bought two cookies. Not because I was hungry, but because I desired the good taste of cookies. Maybe what some of us need from the medical profession is an anti-desire pill. If we had a desire for too much food, money, sex, sleep, or a thousand other things, we could just take this pill, and it would hopefully kill the desire for whatever it was that we didn't need. If they ever invent the anti-desire pill, I'm going to take one before I sit down in front of the television set every night, because I always end up watching a lot of stuff I'm not interested in. I'm Steve Croft. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
1: If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
10: I've been a reporter for more than three decades, and along the way, I've been talking to myself in notebooks I've carried in my back pocket. They've captured thoughts about life, Parenthood, death, friendship, and more. I'm John Dickerson, and I'd like you to join me in figuring out what these 30 years of notebooks mean in my new podcast, Naval Gazing. Each episode, we dig through the piles of notebooks that I've been collecting, and from their entries, try to sort out what makes a life. This collection of audio essays is available wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were
2: blessed. My mom was amazing.